witness some truly devastating and heartbreaking, heart-wrenching things in the life of God's church. Heart-wrenching, devastating things. For instance, it is surely awful to witness the continuing unbelief of people we come to church with over years and years. It's a it's a difficult thing to witness. It's also a, an awful thing to witness when we see a professing Christian, a member of the church, fall into some sort of public shame, some public sin, and have to come under the 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 instruction, the discipline of the church. These things are difficult. These things are perhaps devastating things. But perhaps there is something that stands even above those (laughs) examples. Because friends, is it not the most awful thing when we witness a, a, a person who has formerly professed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ then turn away and deny Jesus? Is that not the most awful thing? You know, to see a person that, that we have worshipped alongside and a person that we have served with in the, in the life of the church then turn away from the church and publicly decry, publicly denounce the saving power of the gospel. Is that not the most awful thing for a Christian to see and to witness? Now we call that, we call this, a, that, that sort of abandonment of the faith, we call that apostasy, don't we? That is, I suppose you could say it's technical term, but why does it happen? And how does it happen? And surely most importantly of all, if it can happen to other people and people we know, well what is to stop that sort of thing happening to you and to me? Well, this evening in 1 Timothy chapter 4, in those short verses that we read together, the Apostle Paul turns to deal with, to tackle this uh, sensitive, vital portion of Scripture. So what we're going to do this evening, I think, is God willing, notice four things that happen, four things that occur in those verses. There are four A's. So I'll just Set them out before you this evening. Four things we'll see, uh, God willing, in the text. We'll see tonight apostasy anticipated. We will see enemies ascertained. We will see error attacked by Paul. And we will see truth affirmed. Give you those again. Apostasy is anticipated here. The enemies are ascertained, the error is attacked by Paul, and then truth at the end is affirmed by the apostle. Uh, uh, those are the points. Before we look at this, let's pray together, shall we? Lord, we long to hear your voice. We know that you, Lord God, the God of creation, you are present everywhere in this earth, but we also know that you have promised to to gather in a special way 
to where your people are as they come together to worship you. And so we do ask, Lord, as we uh, come to Scripture and we come to these verses and we study some, some difficult ideas, we pray to you and we ask for mercy. We ask for a sense of your presence. We ask for help. And we ask that we would hear your voice tonight. We pray as a church to our God. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, what was the first one? Apostasy anticipated. Let me read to you the very, very first phrase. Once again, you can follow through it with me. Now, think about what Paul says here at the beginning of chapter 4. He says, The Spirit clearly says that in the later times, some will abandon the faith. The Spirit clearly says in the later times that some will abandon the faith. Now, you know what some Christians and some uh, churches are like, don't you? Some Christians and some churches are absolutely obsessed with the end times. You know, absolutely fixated on the end times and what is going to happen. There was a famous incident many years ago uh, where a pastor got up into a pulpit in Inverness and uh, for the whole sermon, what he did was draw parallels between, this is showing how long ago it was, but he drew parallels between the Russian, the invading Russian army in Afghanistan, uh, parallels between this and the visions and the prophecies of Revelation, telling the good people of Inverness that the end was upon them in the next couple of months. Now, wait a minute, look at this. When Paul speaks in verse 1 of the later times, what is he talking about? Later times? Like, what is he talking about? Is he, what period of time, what block of time is he thinking about here? Well, maybe you noticed, or maybe you will notice just now with me, that from this point on, do you see the tense that Paul's speaking in? Like, Paul is not speaking in the future tense. He's speaking in a present tense here when he's writing to Timothy. Do you see what that means? He's writing here to Timothy about stuff that was happening there and then. Do you see what this means? That the later times for Paul were actually a present reality that a scripture so clearly confirms. When are the later times? What would you say? When are the last days? They're now. We are living in the last days. It's this block of time from the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ from Jerusalem till the time he comes back. You and I are living in the last days. Now, connected with that, what would you say is to characterize the last days? What would, how would you answer that from a biblical point of view? This period that we're living in just now, what, what marks it? What are we supposed to see from a redemptive point of view? What would you say? I mean, it's not prophecies about the coming of Jesus, is it? It's not the life of Jesus. We've had those. What is it? Is it not the expansion of the church? Is that not the sort of main uh, redemptive event that's happening today, the expansion of the gospel right across the world? That's it, isn't it? But think about what we're being told in verse 1. We are being shown a further characteristic of the age in which we live. Yes, we're going to see today, we're going to see the gospel go across the world. But what else are we going to see? What does he say? In the later times, some will abandon the faith. And isn't that a thought? That 
Our age, yes, it's going to be characterized by this, this great prospering of the church. But the age in which you live, it is marked, it is characterized by apostasy. What does that mean? Like when Paul says, some will abandon the faith, what does that actually mean though? Well, at our last uh, two house groups in the northeast at the Mance, last two house groups, for some reason, we have ended up talking about the same subject at the end of the house group. And I, I was thinking about this earlier. I don't know why we've done this, because it's not in any way connected with the text that we're supposed to be uh, thinking about and studying. But for uh, both times, the last two house groups, we've ended up in the same place. Both times we have been discussing whether or not a person can lose their salvation, haven't we? You know, whether or not maybe through, through sin, through straying, through lack of attendance at church, whether or not a person can, can cease to, at a point, cease to be a child of God, cease to be a Christian. You see it? How would you answer that? Can a person lose their salvation? We hear the answer tonight. We need to hear the answer tonight. If a person is truly in Christ, that person is always, a person is forever in Christ Jesus. You see that? I mean, what is it that, that, that God, once God begins a work in a person, or what happens? What we promise? He will carry that work on to completion in Christ, always in Christ. So do you see what that means for what we're dealing with here? Like when, when Paul says that some are going to abandon the faith, what is he talking about? Well, he's obviously not talking about people who are going to lose their salvation. Now, what is he talking about? He is talking about those who make false professions of faith. False professions of faith going on to move away from the church and deny Jesus Christ. You know, people, think about it, people who perhaps have thought they were Christians but were not truly born again. Those people turning away from the church, denying the power of the gospel. And get this, so frequently will this happen that it's going to come to mark the age in which we live. So I want to say this to you. See, from this point tonight, from this sermon onwards, from 1 Timothy 4, forevermore, do not be shocked at London City Presbyterian Church when people turn away from us and deny Jesus. Don't be shocked about this. I mean, how does Paul begin that phrase? The Spirit clearly says that this will happen. I think he's referring there perhaps to Jesus' promise in Matthew 24. Do you remember what Jesus says to to his people? He says, many will fall away. We've been warned about this. And we've been told this is going to happen. So yes, see if it happens in London City Presbyterian Church, we pray, we gather together for people who, who move away and who deny Jesus. We pray, we gather, we pray for those people. We pray that it won't happen. But let's not be shocked about it. Let's not be surprised when people turn away from the church. This is something that will mark the age in which you and I live. 
apostasy anticipated. Two, enemies ascertained. Like, surely you are with me and appreciate that the, the, the topic tonight, the subject matter is not, it's not light, is it? I mean, this is serious, serious stuff. People turning away. So surely we've got to ask, how does this happen? And, and, are people turning away? Who's to blame for this? Paul, I think, answers this by giving us, yeah, two answers to that question. So who's to blame? Well, first of all, look at this. He gets right to the core, you know, right to the root of the problem, and he shows us ultimately who's to blame. Would you look at verse 1? Just see what he says. Because I think it's shocking. He says, some will abandon the faith. What's happening? Why are they doing that? Some will abandon the faith, and they will follow Deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. You see what he's saying? He's saying that when people are turning away from God like this and turning away from the gospel, turning away, what's happening? What's happening in that person's life? What is going on with them? There is a satanic work of deception that is going in that person's life and in their heart. Is that not shocking? A satanic work taking place in that person's life. But then he gives us, ah, look at this, he gives us a second cause here. Because he speaks about the very instruments or agents that Satan uses to take people away from the church. Look at verse 2. So such teachings, so such sort of demonic deception, it comes through, do you see the words, hypocritical liars. So do you see what Paul is saying? He's saying to take people away from the gospel, to take people away from London City Presbyterian Church, to take people away from any gospel church. What does Satan do? He uses false teachers. Now, he he uses so-called Christians, and he uses so-called Christian ministers who will stand up, and who will preach a gospel that is no gospel at all. What, what, do you, what do you think about when I say to you, a false teacher? I mean, do you think, as I often do, about the first century context of many of these books? Is that what you think? You know, think about oh, the situation in Colossae, or a false teacher in Ephesus, or so forth, something like that? Do you not see tonight that there are false teachers abundant in the church of Jesus Christ in the 21st century? I mean, did you see the story last week in Scotland? And many of you will. Some of you have talked to me about it. Uh, Our current moderator, uh, a bloke, David Robertson, many of you know him. So he writes an article for a Scottish newspaper. And he's writing about a a prosperity gospel minister who is coming from uh, the States uh, and he's coming to to Scotland. And David Robertson writes this article and he asks this man basically not to bother coming. Now here is a man coming from the States and and the interest in in him is, is vast. He's 
speaking, I think, at one of our biggest arenas that we've got, or one of the biggest venues, and I think he's sold out. There are thousands and thousands of people coming to hear this guy speak. And I'm asking you tonight, is the situation there not exactly the same as First Timothy chapter 4? Is it not? Here is a man being raised up to seem as though he is a gospel minister. But is he not a man being used by Satan to lead people away from what is gospel truth? He's leading people away from the cross, away from salvation. Is it not the same thing? And don't think for a second that that is an isolated incident. Like tonight we're gathering here, but you know as well as I do that there are false teachers, are there not, in so many churches throughout London today. Isn't that right though? I mean, a, a liberal minister who will come up and, and who will stand in the pulpit and will, will preach a message that is contrary to the message of Jesus. Or, let's face facts, many former Pentecostal ministers who perhaps used to preach the message of the gospel, but what is happening throughout London We need to wake up to it. They're now bracing a health and wealth type message. Do you see it? It's today. It's throughout the church. This sort of 1 Timothy 4 satanic deception is happening today. And don't we all surely look at these situations and ask the same question? You're not asking the question, how do they do it? How do they do it? How can you stand? And how can you resolutely deceive people away from Jesus? How are you not asking that question? Paul tells us how they can do it. Look at it. Verse 2. Such teaching comes through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared. Do you see what that means? The conscience seared. It refers to that uh, medical process. What's it called? Cauterization. You know, where where skin is gradually burdened to make it numb to pain. Do you see what Paul's saying? He's saying that's what's happened to the false teachers. That their tolerance of personal sin, it has gradually numbed them to truth. And so where are they now? They don't know what is error and what is not. And so let me say two things to you. One is really, really obvious. The other maybe not so much. First thing, obvious thing to get it out of the way. Beware of false teaching. And beware of false teachers. Beware of any teaching that is not salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ, in Christ alone. The second thing. Beware yourselves. And beware of your own heart. Because what are we seeing here? A tolerance of personal sin. What does that lead to? It leads to a numbing of our conscience. A tolerance of our personal sin leading us to be numb to error. 
We need to watch our own lives. We need to watch our walk very carefully. Let this eventually be true of you and I. So we see enemies ascertained. Third thing, we see error attacked. So we've seen very much that there's a problem at hand. People are turning away from Jesus. We've actually identified the authors of this big, great deception, Satan and his use of false teachers. Uh, There's a third sort of question we're asking here as well, though, is there not? How do we recognize this? Like if there's false teaching in the church, what should we be on the lookout for? What is it? How do we recognize the false teaching? Well, what Paul does next, you'll see, is he unpacks the content of the false teaching that was actually going on in the church of Ephesus at the time. Like, you see what I mean? Like, he's not warning Timothy, saying, Timothy, in the future, there's going to be a problem. He's talking about there and then and saying, this is the problem. So what was the problem? Well, if you look at verse 3, you'll see it and... Marianne is not going to appreciate this very much. And if Henry was here, (laughs) I don't think he would appreciate it very much either. Andrew, I don't know how you think about this either. Two problems, okay? What's the first one? The false teachers were forbidding marriage in the Christian church. So they're saying to these Ephesian Christians, you are not uh, properly spiritual. You are not uh, a proper Christian uh, unless you abstain from these things. Unless you abstain from this intimate relationship of marriage. You're not a proper Christian uh, unless you're single. Which, does that sound weird to us? It, It does sound weird, but it sounds weird only until we, till we see that that's been going on throughout church history, isn't it? Like from here to the sect that discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls and wait a minute, through to the priesthood of the Catholic Church. Have people not frequently throughout church history falsely equated spirituality, true spirituality with this abstinence from, from, from marriage? It's weird, but it happens. And then there's a second problem here. Look at it, verse 3. What else were the false teachers doing? They were forbidding, not just marriage, but certain foods. So you see what they're doing? They're, they're saying you're not properly spiritual. You are not a proper Christian until, well, I think in this instance, maybe it's until you're a vegetarian. You know, not a proper Christian unless you abstain from eating meat. Now, what I want you to think about here is just how surprising this error is. Isn't it surprising? Like, think about the language that Paul's used here. I mean, it's been so strong. He's called them hypocritical liars. He's effectively said you're agents of the devil himself. We might expect to to learn that they were I don't know, engaging in some grandiose, massive error, denying the divinity of Jesus, the triune nature of God. What are they doing? Forbidden marriage. Forbidden the eating of meat. Do you see the lesson for us? There is always a certain subtlety to the false teaching of the church. 
There is always, always a certain subtlety to it. And do you know what? In churches like ours, very often it won't be these grand things. It won't be a, an error about the, the nature of God or the person of Christ. Very often in churches like ours, it'll be about the message of salvation itself. And you see, don't you, that that's what was happening in Ephesus. Like these people here, they're saying, well, okay, yes, you need to believe in Jesus. Yes, you need to, yeah, repentance of your sins. But you also, you also need to do other things. You also need to abstain from, from, from marriage, from, from certain things. And friends, it's that you and I need to be on the lookout for in the life of the church. We need to be on the lookout for that from their teaching, also in our hearts, that we must never ever require from anyone else anything other than repentance and belief in the Lord Jesus Christ for their salvation. If we add to that, what are we doing? What is it? It's false teaching. It's false teaching in the church. Last thing. Fourth A. Truth is affirmed. Um, when I was younger, much younger, secondary school age in Scotland, one of my friends was going through a particular, uh, particularly uh, rough time where barely a week would go by without this guy getting into real trouble with with some authority or other. And uh, through this uh, <laughs> this piece of his life, if you went round to his house, his mum, without fail, would be saying the same thing to this guy. Uh, she would be trying to drum this mantra into this guy and saying to him, would you please uh, think before you act? Just for once, would you think before you act. So she's trying there to provide this guy with a principle to live by. A prince, think before you act. A principle for him to lead his life by. Well, we see in closing something like that from the Apostle Paul. Because what he does as he corrects the false teachers. Do you know what blossoms out of the correction? What emerges out of the correction is a principle for Christian living. It is a principle I think really tonight should cover all of our lives as the people of God. A principle here for us tonight. So how does he correct these teachers? Well, what have, what have we said that they were doing? They were forbidden marriage, forbidden certain foods. Look at Paul's attitude. He's saying, no, no, that's not right. You cannot forbid these things. These things are what? They are blessings from God, aren't they? They're gifts from God. We're given all food to eat. We're given marriage as what? What is it? It's a creation ordinance. It's a blessing from God. You cannot be denying these things. So do you see then the principle that emerges? Do you see the principle? Get this. Three times in just a couple of verses here, you notice that Paul speaks about being 
thankful. Doesn't he? Look at verse 3. Don't abstain from these things. Receive them. And receive them with thankfulness to God. A phrase he repeats and repeats again. Do you see the principle for yourself tonight from God? The Christian life should be lived in an, an attitude of permanent gratitude. Gratitude to our living God. That, that much more than the people out there, much more than anyone else, because of our relationship with Jesus, there should be this permanent, constant thankfulness to God for what we have, for, for what we've been given, for what we receive. And isn't it true that we can take that principle into this coming week, into the next seven days, isn't it? Like, can't we in this next seven days be thankful to God? Can we not thank God this next week for the health that we've got? We can thank God for the, for the work that we've got, for the jobs that we've got. We, do you know what? We can actually thank God this week for the trials that we are going through just now that are going to mature us into the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. We can thank God for, for things like music and art. We can. We can. We can thank him for the enjoyment of nature. We can thank him for the means of grace and, and for the fellowship of this church. We can thank God for opportunities to serve him in the life of the church. Yes, we can thank God for marriage. And we can thank God even for the food that we eat. But most of all, above all of those things, what's the obvious thing to say in light of this portion of Scripture? We can thank God this week. We can thank God starting now for the very nature of salvation. Can't we? There are no additional requirements. Is that not reason for gratitude from the people of God? No additional criteria. It's not about us. How we can thank God that it is all of it, all of it about Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. And we can thank God starting tonight for the security of all of that. The fact that once we're in Christ, we are always, always, always in Christ. What does Jesus have to say about it? Nothing's going to snatch them. Nothing is going to snatch those people out of my hand. Can't we thank God for that? Let us go into this week praising the name of Jesus, praising God for the nature of salvation. But let's go as the people of God, thanking our God of mercy and love and grace. Let's pray.